If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. In my previous episode, I spoke about the missing women of the Yakima Nation in Washington. The huge reservation is home to rivers, wilderness, and an uncountable number of dark corners for people to go missing from. This week, I will be sharing the mysterious deaths that have taken place in that same area, all of women from the Yakima area who died in ways that either can't be explained or appear to be possible homicides. As always, we ask that if you know anything about these cases, even the smallest detail, that you contact the local police agency. We've actually been told by another unsolved case that every time their story is shared publicly, they have received some sort of new tip and they are all helpful. So if you know something, don't hesitate. These are the mysterious deaths from the Yakima Reservation. As of August 2023, Seattle, Washington has the highest number of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in the United States. This is according to the Urban Indian Health Institution. Murder is the third leading cause of death for American or Alaska Native women. According to the CDC, the leading causes of death overall in the U.S. for ages 1 through 44 in 2021 were unintentional injuries, meaning accidents, car wrecks, and so forth. Then suicide, which has been the number two killer for the last decade, followed by COVID at three and homicide coming in at four. In 2020, things were tumultuous and homicide came in at number three for the average person in the States. But from the mid 90s until now, it had been the fifth and sixth leading causes. When Echo K. Little Wolf was young, she lost her two front teeth in a bumper car accident. As an adult, she wore false replacements. Those teeth would be the proof needed to identify her body in 2017. For a few years prior to 2017, Echo had been camping in a field near Wapato, about 20 miles northeast of the Yakima Reservation. Echo was a citizen of the Yakima Nation. Even though she lived in the field off East Wapato Road, Echo stayed in contact with friends and family. Echo would come by her parents' house often to check in with them, get updates about her three brothers, grab some fresh food, or take a hot shower. She would also help around the house working odd jobs to earn some money. Her family and other houseless folks in the area knew Echo. She was a tomboy with short hair. She would wear baseball caps and was often seen walking on the North Track Road. Her living situation was unconventional, but it was hers. There was a large tree in the field that kept her covered, she had a tent, food, mattress. It was her home. 
On August 15, 2017, Jeanette Osborne, Echo's mother, realized that she hadn't seen her daughter in seven days, and that was too long and not in Echo's character. Starting with the tribal police, Jeanette made the call. The police searched around local houseless camps, during which some in the area mentioned that they had seen Echo just a few days before. Still, this was too long to go without contact, and Jeanette remained concerned. Unsatisfied, she drove the 20 minutes from Yakima to look for her daughter herself. Going to the field with the tree where she knew Echo would be, Jeanette arrived between 3 and 4 p.m. She parked and got out of her car. As soon as she did, she said her heart sank. There was a smell. She knew her daughter was gone. Not wanting to be alone during the discovery, she waited on the road for tribal police officers to arrive. Also by her side were other family members and investigators who had been contacted. Going into the field, Jeanette's suspicions were confirmed. Finding her daughter's body, she said it was, quote, like somebody there had hit her and she had fallen over. As part of Yakima tradition, some of the family members left as to not be with a dead person when night fell. I was unable to find more details on that, so if anyone knows of a good resource to learn about that tradition, please let us know. Jeanette was not one of those who left. She said, I brought her into the world and I'm going to take her out. So she waited in the field until Echo was loaded by the coroner and taken away. For the week Echo hadn't been heard from, the temperature in the area had hit at least 100 degrees every day. That heat led to rapid decomposition. If Jeanette hadn't gone to the field when she did, it's impossible to say how long it would have taken authorities to identify her. The decomposition was so extensive that officials couldn't even tell Echo's gender just by looking at her. Jeanette assumed, especially given the circumstances, that an autopsy would be conducted to determine Echo's cause of death. An autopsy was not ordered. Echo Little Wolf's cause of death was determined as being natural, probably brought on by cardiorespiratory arrest. Cardiorespiratory arrest is a bit of a catch-all. It literally means your heart and lungs stop functioning. It's kind of a medical way of saying died. This diagnosis seems to have been decided by the authorities based on what they told Jeanette, which was that Echo was a druggie. Jeanette wasn't sure how they could have even come to this conclusion. Not only did they not do the autopsy to check Echo's heart, but according to her, the decomposition was so bad that there was nothing left of her. There was no heart. Since the cause of death was considered natural, no criminal case was opened and no investigation was done. You would think at this point that damn near any death of an indigenous woman, especially near or on a reservation, would automatically spawn an investigation, but I guess that's why this remains an epidemic. Jeanette had Echo cremated, a decision she has since regretted after learning more about the circumstances surrounding Echo's death. Right before she went missing, she had cashed two checks from the Yakima Nation. When Echo was found, her EBT, jewelry, and large purse, which she never went anywhere without, were all missing. The tree in the field where Echo was found has since been bulldozed. Jeanette is aware that being an indigenous woman, she's grateful to even have the closure of knowing where her daughter was and that she wasn't just lost forever. However, she knows her child did not die of heart failure. She also knows that since there was never an investigation, her case was closed and Echo was cremated, that there isn't much that can be done except to bring attention to the case. Perhaps her death will cause a positive change so that other families won't have to go through what she's been through. The other hope is that the people she feels are responsible for Echo's death will come forward or that someone will call in a tip which could lead to an investigation. 
For Jeanette, her daughter's death was not due to her heart simply stopping. She said, it wasn't heart failure at all. You'll never convince me of that. If you know anything about the possible robbery and or murder of Echo K. Little Wolf in the Wapato area on or around August 15th, 2017, well, there aren't any specific places to send tips as there isn't a case, but you can call the Yakima Tribal Police at 509-865-2933 and hopefully they'll listen. You can always send a tip to tips.fbi.gov as well. And another one where cremation shouldn't have happened. Yep. Daisy May Heath was just a little kid waiting for the school bus when she realized a puppy had followed her. As her sister Patsy continued to wait for the bus, Daisy scooped up the puppy and took it to her house. Seeing that the bus was there for her, she went running back down to catch it. An elderly person driving down the same street didn't stop and they struck Daisy. Thankfully, the car was moving slowly enough that the only injury Daisy May sustained was a large cut on her left arm and shoulder. Daisy May was born January 10, 1958. At that time and into adulthood, she used the last name Tallman, her mother's maiden name. Growing up, she was surrounded by family and tradition. Depending on the article you read, she was the youngest child of six or possibly nine. Daisy May and her sisters were raised by their maternal grandparents who showed them how to live a life full of love, sharing, customs, and hard work. The family managed farm animals, harvested their own crops, and spent time in nature honing their skills. Daisy thrived outdoors. She easily hunted elk to feed her family and others. She appreciated the land, the forest, and the spirit of the salmon. She was a natural naturalist. Sharing was part of Daisy's nature, like how she did fundraising for UNICEF when she was a little kid. She was also quite the athlete, excelling in both basketball and softball. As she got older, the call of nature would keep her living off the land for weeks at a time, usually in areas with important history to her heritage, around her hometown of White Swan and the Columbia River. Sometimes she would visit family in Warm Springs, which is just outside of Bend. Bend, Oregon is in central Oregon on the southeast side of Mount Hood. While in the wild, Daisy would collect traditional food, fish, and hunt. Her sister Patsy Whitefoot would recall just how fiercely independent and self-reliant Daisy May had become. No matter how independent, Daisy May's nieces and nephews always brought her back home. She helped to raise them as she and another sister lived with Patsy to help. Daisy May did whatever she could to support them, such as helping Patsy so she could finish college, providing for the household, helping her niece become a powwow queen. Family was always first. In 1986, Daisy May was excited to start a family of her own. Giving birth, she named her daughter Sherry, which was in honor of a sister of Daisy's who had passed away. The exciting and hopeful start to the year took a drastic turn when Sherry died from SIDS, or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. As if that wouldn't have been enough for Daisy May to emotionally deal with, in August of that same year, her grandmother, who had raised her as her own, also passed. Daisy was in crisis, so Patsy came back home to help her. It was around this time that Daisy May changed her last name from Tallman, her mother's maiden name, to Heath, her father's last name. Still reeling from the loss of her grandmother and baby daughter, she went out for another one of her stints in the wild in late August 1987. She was 29 years old. 29-year-old Karen Wallahy, whom I spoke about in the missing episode, disappeared in the same time frame. 
It wouldn't be until October 29th, two months later, that Daisy would be officially declared missing when her family filed a report with the Yakima Nation Tribal Police. I didn't see a reasoning, but I can assume that the delay was due to her being out in the wild so often. She was always on the go, so it seems reasonable to think her family thought that she was on a hunting expedition for a few weeks and then maybe made a trip over the river and mountain to Warm Springs. As usual, there were difficulties in communication between agencies and families. I didn't see any updates or information about what happened for the next two decades, but one can assume that there were few searches. You can also imagine it would seem impossible, especially without the help of law enforcement, to know where to begin to look for someone who was so well-versed in the area. Then, on November 26, 2008, there was news. It wasn't good, but there were hopes for answers. Human remains had been located on the Yakima Reservation in a remote section protected for indigenous persons' usage only, unless a non-tribal member had permission. The lone road to get in even had a gate and sometimes a guard. Near the body was a set of keys, a backpack, and a turquoise ring Patsy recognized because she had bought it for her sister. DNA testing confirmed that the remains were those of Daisy May. Because of the body's location, the FBI has jurisdiction and has said that her death is considered a suspected homicide. Patsy and other family members were grateful to lay Daisy May to rest, but many questions and frustrations remain. Patsy told the Yakima Herald, Not only on the Yakima Reservation, but throughout Indian country, it seems like Native women were like bounties. We were to be hunted for. Losing her little sister was raw and painful like an open wound saying, while it has been several years since my sister has been missing, any type of traumatic experience still makes me relive the trauma of her life. As for others in her position, Patsy said, they report it, and the most awful thing is the police don't come back to talk to the families. There's no communication. I hope something comes of this. They need to be more compassionate. In March of 2021, family and friends of Daisy's gathered for a memorial, not only to honor her life, but the lives of so many other missing and murdered indigenous women and people. Patsy said, I'm just glad I could be here in remembrance of Daisy. I'm glad that we could honor her this way and to let them know she existed. We have never forgotten her. She's always included in our family gatherings. I want to get the story of my sister out there. She was a good person. She was looked to in a very positive light by her sisters and family members and nieces and nephews she helped raise. While Patsy has been vocal and public, speaking whenever and wherever she can about MMIW and her sister, not everyone feels the same way. One of Daisy's sisters is so fearful of serial killers and her own safety, her anxiety will not allow anyone to photograph or film her at these events an understandable and valid concern. As always, this is far from the only loss this family has dealt with. Agnes Faye Whitefoot Laura was Patsy and Daisy May's cousin. Born in 1955, Agnes was a member of the Yakima Nation as well. Agnes's parents split up, which was hard enough. Sadly, just like her cousin Daisy, Agnes and her 12 siblings lived with their grandparents after their mother Lillian died by drowning. Drowning and hypothermia are all too common causes of death in Yakima. Falling into the river while fishing led to Lillian Smartlowitz's drowning death on April 8, 1969, a week before her 39th birthday. Tragedy continued to strike the Whitefoot family. 
Lester Lee Whitefoot, Agnes's brother, passed away in May of 1976 when he was 19 after accidentally driving into a canal and drowning. Despite the misfortune she experienced, Agnes went on to complete her GED and took secretarial training. In 1994, Agnes and her three children were living in the Apus Gaudi Housing Park in Wapato. Apus is part of the Yakima Nation Housing Authority and is for low-income residents. The park is located at the farthest eastern point of Wapato, which is at the far northeastern corner of the Yakima Reservation. On the morning of April 15, 1994, Leela Whitefoot, Agnes's sister, was rushing out the door to get to work. Everyone else in the home had already left for the day. When the phone rang, she hesitated to answer, but something told her she needed to. On the other end of the line was the Yakima Nation tribal dispatcher. That was how Leela learned that her sister had been attacked. It was around 3.30 that morning, four hours before the call, that Agnes was found unresponsive in her home. Whoever found her called for help and took her to the hospital. Leela was called as she would need to go to the hospital to sign off on an emergency surgery, but by the time she got there, the hospital had decided to move forward without the signature. Agnes passed away from her injuries while being operated on. Her cause of death was listed as massive internal injuries and bleeding. Some of the injuries included her pancreas, liver, and kidneys being crushed from having been beaten, possibly with a blunt instrument. Not only was Agnes the same age as her mother when she passed, but April 15th was her late mother's birthday. Investigators found that a group of men and young boys had broken into her home, sexually assaulted her, and severely beaten her, which had led to her death. The underage rapists and murderers made a deal with their older counterparts. Since they weren't adults, the charges wouldn't be as serious, so they kept quiet as to who those men were. Three underage boys were arrested and charged for Agnes's death. At least two of the attackers were sentenced to juvenile hall, but because of their age, the files are not available to the public. It would be no surprise if they were released at 18 years old. So at the most, they may be served, I don't know, three or four years, if maybe only a few months, depending on their age at the time of the attack. They never turned on the older men, and no one has served real time for murdering Agnes. As her sister Leela said, the perpetrators are walking free and they're walking among us. We have to break the silence. That is my prayer today for them to have a conscience. Statistics from the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center show that American Indian women are the most battered, raped, stalked, and murdered group of women in the United States, 70% of the time by non-Native offenders. Leela is all too familiar with those statistics. Besides losing her mother and brother to drowning and her sister to a brutal murder, Leela herself has experienced violence firsthand. In the early 1970s, a rancher who lived near the reservation was attacking Native women and found himself at Leela's home. He knocked on her door, and when she opened it, he punched her in the face and pushed his way in. She and her young baby survived, and she was able to press charges. The man went to prison for three years. The more Leela speaks out, the more she sees the momentum building to acknowledge what has been done to Indigenous women, to keep her sister Agnes's story in the public eye, and to do what needs to be done to make a change in the community, state, and legal realm. As for Patsy, Daisy's sister, she has become a prominent educator. She has served as president of the National Indian Education Association. Under President Obama, she was a member of the National Advisory Council on Indian Education, and she continues to advocate not only for her sister, but for all of the missing and murdered Indigenous persons. It took nearly 40 years for Daisy May to be found, 
Now that she has been, it's unclear where her case stands. That doesn't mean information isn't sought, though. If you know anything about Daisy Mae Tallman or Heath, who was found in the wilderness of Yakima, please contact the Yakima Nation Police at 509-865-2933. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. Another case that unfortunately doesn't have much information is Sarah D. Winier. On July 22, 1985, a report of a burning vehicle was made. 
It was 3.30 a.m. just off McDonald Road and half a mile from Highway 97, not far from what is now the Yakima Nation Cultural Center. Inside the car was a body sitting upright in the driver's seat. The body was so burned it could only be identified by dental records. That's when it was learned the identity of the deceased was 24-year-old Sarah D. Wynier, a young woman who had recently moved back to the remote area of the Yakima Reservation after living in California. At the time, she was employed at the Save More grocery store in Wapato. Once again, there is no listing as to the agency in charge of her case, so if you know anything about 24-year-old Sarah D. Wynier, who was found burned to death in her vehicle on July 22, 1985, off Highway 97, please contact the Yakima Nation Police Department. Named after her grandmother, Alice Ida Looney was the youngest of 11 children. Like Daisy May, she loved caring for her nieces and nephews. She also loved to participate in traditions such as catching and drying fish. Alice was only three years old when she lost her father, Wilkins Looney Sr., to a severe kidney infection. I want to give a special thanks to Jess Marple on Instagram for helping me out with the medical transcription on that one. Growing up, Alice attended Goldendale Elementary School before going to the Fort Apache Boarding School in Arizona. Fort Apache Boarding School is still in operation. Originally built as a military camp in 1870, it went through a few names before becoming Camp Apache. The Army left the fort in 1922 due to lack of use. The following year, the school became the location for the Bureau of Indian Affairs Theodore Roosevelt Indian Boarding School, which was first used for Navajo children. In the 30s, the focus shifted to Apache children. Now it serves as a middle school functioning under the tribal council. In my research, I was unable to find if this boarding school was as vicious and damaging as so many other schools indigenous children were sent to in the 18 and 1900s, but one might assume it was based on Alice's experience. After she returned home, she never spoke of her time in Arizona. A sensitive, soft-spoken person, Alice struggled with depression, which was exacerbated by bullying done towards her because she was larger. This depression led to self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. Things only got worse for Alice. In October 1984, she was in a serious car accident. Her injuries were so bad she had to relearn how to walk, was given permanent leg braces, and had to wear a halo. In 2001, she lost her mother. For those who knew of the relationship between mother and daughter, it was clear Ava Looney's death hit Alice hard. It left her feeling like she had no home to go to. Alice didn't drive, so she got around by hitchhiking or getting rides from friends. In the early 2000s, she was dating a man off and on. Sometimes he would stay with her, sometimes she stayed with family members. Because of her sort of transient lifestyle, it wasn't uncommon for family or friends to not hear from her for a week or two. In September 2004, Alice informed one of her sisters and a friend that she would be getting addiction support via rehabilitation. As far as anyone knew, Alice had not yet checked into a facility. On August 16th, Alice was at the Legends Casino in Toppenish. While there, she encountered her sister Mary and her brother-in-law. Alice asked her family to take her 15 minutes north to Wapato, which they did. Dropping her off at the Roadrunner store, they told her to be careful. It was midnight and Alice had $20 in her pocket. The last thing she said to them was, Love you. Once again, I have to recommend Uncovered.com. On Alice's page, they have an entire timeline laid out with a map and other resources. It is very impressive and very helpful. 
A few days later, the nieces and nephews, who were in far more contact with Alice than her siblings, realized that none of them had heard from her. A formal report was made with tribal police. During the investigation, friends reported that Alice had been seen with an unknown man at a home in Wapato after her sister had dropped her off there. Around that time, other friends said they saw Alice and that man at a bar. There were unconfirmed rumors that she might have engaged in an altercation with a possible drug dealer while there. Everywhere Alice had been reported as being seen, her family checked out and hung flyers. The nieces and nephews would watch the side of the road for anything that might lead them to her. Hospitals and rehabs were also checked far and wide. There was no sign of Alice. Eventually, the FBI took over the case as they were actively investigating 16 cases of Native women on or near the Yakima Reservation who had disappeared or been killed. Two years later, the investigation found that one case was accidental hypothermia, two were accidental drownings, and 10 were homicides. It's unclear what the other three wound up being listed as. The family's desperate search came to an end just over a year later, on November 30th, 2005. A hunter discovered a skeleton under a log at Status Creek, a popular fishing spot 30 miles southwest of Wapato. An autopsy showed Alice had been in the creek for over a year. She was identified by her dental records and her leg braces. Because of the state of her body, her cause of death could only be listed as undetermined. The body's location, her disappearance, and the broken neck bone all led authorities to believe her death was a homicide, even noting that the cause of death could have possibly been strangulation. But they need more evidence before altering the case's status. Yes, a strangulation could have caused the broken neck bone, but it also could have been caused by other non-homicide-related injuries. As of today, Alice Looney's case is still open and remains unsolved. Her family has not given up and hopes that someone, perhaps you were at the casino or in the area of Wapato on August 16th, 2004, and you'll come forward with information. If you have a tip, you are asked to contact the Yakima Nation Police Department at 509-865-2933 or the Yakima FBI, which is at 509-453-4859. Knowing that accidental drownings, like those listed by the FBI, can happen, it makes it easy to dismiss cases where bodies are found in the water. However, not every case where someone appears to have died via drowning is so black and white. Take Teresa R. Stahi's death, for example. On July 7, 1987, the body of 25-year-old Teresa was pulled from a fish screen diversion canal near Toppenish Creek. Located just south of Granger, the area is home to the Yakima River and sits at the furthest northeast corner of the Yakima Reservation. Teresa's body was pulled from the canal and sent for autopsy. She was clothed, and by the looks of her body, she hadn't been in the water for more than 12 hours. The cause of death was listed as drowning. Even though the Yakima County Sheriff's Office said they had ruled out any sign of foul play, There is a memo in the FBI's case file that listed her death as a, quote, mysterious death matter. There is no information anywhere about where you can give a tip, so we'll say that if you know anything about the death of 25-year-old Teresa Aristahi on or around July 6th or 7th, 1987, at the Toppenish Creek, please contact the Yakima Nation Police Department or the Yakima FBI office at 509-453-48. Two of the deaths from the FBI investigation came back as unclear, one being Teresa Stahi's drowning, 
the other being Celestine Spencer. In late October 1982, 21-year-old mother Celestine Spencer disappeared. Two weeks later, on November 11, 1982, the body of the young mother to a two-year-old son was found at the bottom of a gully. The gully was located in a field along the north slope of the Ottenham Ridge and McCullough Road, just about seven miles southwest of the city of Yakima. The FBI would later claim her cause of death was accidental hypothermia, although circumstances surrounding her death led them to feel inconclusive, adding to the mystery another disappearance and claims of abuse. Just a year and a half later, on May 25, 1984, Celestine's young son disappeared. Roland Jack Spencer III was three years old but suffered from mental disabilities. He had epilepsy for which he took medication. He could not walk far without falling. He was delayed in vocabulary, only saying mama, dada, and do. He also had severe hearing loss. His medication for his epilepsy was so serious that if he went without it, he could fall into a coma. After his mother died, Roland went to live with his great aunt in Wapato. On May 25, 1984, it appears Roland was outside near Knight Lane and Campbell Road, a very rural area, when he was abducted. Even though his mother died under strange circumstances, there is nothing listed publicly implying any kind of connection. It's believed this may have just been a stranger abduction. That being said, someone in Japan actually created a website just for Roland's case. On that website is all of the information available on NamUs and Charlie Project, but there's also another tidbit. The website's owner claims that in 2009, a cousin of Roland reached out to him and said that even though he was also very young at the time, he either knew of or witnessed Roland's father abusing his mother while she was pregnant, and it was believed that the violent abuse was what led to Roland's developmental delays. In November of 2000, Roland Jack Spencer III was declared legally dead. When he was last seen, Roland was 2 feet 5 inches tall and 24 pounds. Today, he would be 43 years old. He was Native American with black hair, brown eyes, and a scar on his torso. He sometimes went by Jack or his nickname, Dewboy. On the day he went missing, he was wearing a red long-sleeved t-shirt with white striped, brown corduroy pants, and tan boots. If you know anything about the disappearance of Roland Jack Spencer III or the death of Celestine Spencer, you are asked to contact the Yakima Tribal Police Department at 509-865-7765. And that went to me. I don't know what the deal is with the dad, but to have the a 21-year-old mother disappear and then be found yeah. deceased and then to have a very intensely delayed child with a lot of handicaps mm -hmm. also disappear. I don't know. Suspicious. Something doesn't seem right there. Another drowning that is filed with the FBI as a possible homicide is that of 19-year-old Lasora Yvette Eli. On February 2nd, 1982, a farmer found her body in a drainage ditch on Parton Road in Toppenish. Lasora was fully dressed and face down. The coroner marked her death as an accidental drowning. It was when the FBI did their investigation into the 16 deaths that the idea of homicide came up. However, no other information has been released that explains how they came to that decision or if there is anything to be shared with the public to help solve her case. In fact, 
This is basically all of the information available for Lasora's possible murder. She was 19, indigenous, and clothed. Our final case today also has very little information, and that is the case of Sheila Pearl Lewis. It was August 3, 1980, when Sheila was found near Parker Dam, just south of Union Gap. At 33 years old, Sheila had been working for the State Department of Social and Health Services, living in Yakima. When her body was recovered, it appeared, due to the extensive internal injuries, that she may have been struck by a large vehicle. So for Lasora Yvette Eli and Sheila Pearl Lewis, if you have any information about either of those cases, you are asked to contact the Yakima FBI office at 509-453-4859. So there you go. Those are the mysterious deaths or unsolved deaths or maybe uncategorized deaths of Yakima Nation. So it is interesting because there are some where it's like, well, was that just a drowning? Right. You know, I think of Daisy May. I'm so curious as someone who was so well-versed in the outdoors and would go out for weeks at a time, obviously something can happen. You know, you Mm -hmm. can get hurt, you can get sick, you can be attacked by an animal, you can, a million things. And so it's very interesting to me. I would love for them to share a little bit more with the public as to why they would have reclassified that as possible homicide. It makes me wonder, was there something on her skeletal remains? I'm assuming skeletal after all those years. Was there something, some sort of injury maybe that made right. them think that? Like a fracture or Yeah, something. like something that didn't look like she fell and hit her head, you know. I'm glad that the FBI came in and looked at all of those cases to say. Absolutely. You know, all right, really what's going on here? Because that's too much. So there you have it. And I'll be back with my next episode, which will feature the murdered women of Yakima Nation and the Yakima Reservation. But please share those tips. That's all these families want is just sending that information. One little thing. I saw a car. I saw a person. I was at the casino that night and she looked a certain way. Or, oh, I saw that person walking on the street and this other person was following them. Literally anything. And I know it's been many, many years, but maybe still think about it and it'll still help. So call it in. Town of White Swan. 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 <laughs> I like to say it beautiful like a swan. Swan. Who had. You didn't say mm-mm. the magic mm-mm. word. I sure didn't. Which was A. Butterfingers. <laughs> Sorry, my tongue isn't as warmed up as some other people in the room. Mine's working great. <laughs> Mine's tired from. Licking my cats. Your cats? Yeah, with one of those hold a tongue in your mouth things. Wow. I clean my cats. Especially without the help of... Unknown man. Man. Mm, It's a a man, Just a man. (laughs) I'm looking for a real man. I need a man, man. Perhaps you were at the casino. Casino? Oh, my God. That was my Grammy talking (laughs) through my body. Oh, my God. That was weird. You want to go to the casino? Topanish Creek. Topanish. You fucking slut. (laughs) 
Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs>